Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. Today's episode is with Josh Mandelbrem, founding CEO of Camp Ford Therapeutics. Josh is joined by Jorge Conde, general partner at A16Z Bio and Health. Together, they talk about how Camp Four focuses on regulatory RNA and what that means how Josh thinks about platform companies, particularly from the perspective of having formerly worked in business development himself, and what he's learned as the founding CEO of the company. Let's get started. Hey, Josh, thanks for joining us on BioEats World. Let me start with a hard one for you. What does Camp 4 mean? Yeah, uh, great question. And and first of all, longtime fan of the show, Jorge. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Can't believe I'm finally here. So we get asked that question a lot, and it's definitely one of my favorite ones. Um, so it, it kind of has two meetings. The first one is really straightforward. Camp 4 is the last camp before the top of Everest. And so we see diseases like mountains, and we want to get to the top of those mountains. But I think more recently, what I've become very fond of telling about is there's a camp in Yosemite called Camp Ford. All the greatest rock climbers in the world come to Yosemite to really push the boundaries of what is possible at the time. And so as an example, there's a 3,000 meter cliff called El Capitan. First person to scale that did it in 18 months. More recently, Alex and Old scaled it in about an hour and 45 minutes without any rope. And and so that's that's pushing the boundaries. And we think about Camp 4 as pushing the boundaries of what's possible with our biology, all to the endeavor of creating new drugs to solve many different types of diseases. That's a phenomenal name for a company that's trying to do uh, things as challenging as you and, and frankly, any, any company looking to develop new medicines is trying to do. It wasn't always the name of the company, though, right? When I invested in this company, it had a different name. It, it did. The name of the company was called Marauder. And... Um, you know, ironically, I was on the way to work the other day listening to a band called A Tribe Called Quest, and they have a song that in the beginning they define a marauder, and it is somebody who loots. So I just felt like that probably wasn't the best fit for Camp 4 in terms of our aspirations. Let's talk a little bit about what Camp 4 does. And we know what Camp 4 means, so let's shift over to uh, what Camp 4 does. And I think there's two two areas that I think are particularly interested to to focus on when we, we talk about your your mission and and really what you're working uh, towards in terms of developing new medicines. The first one is you focus on what you call the dark side of the genome. 
Give us the the 90 second uh, elevator pitch version of what that means. Sure. So, and, and this won't be surprising to many, but ultimately we know that around 2% of our genome is protein coding. That means about 20 to 25,000 genes exist that make the proteins and enzymes that help us live normal, healthy lives. But it turns out that the other 98% of the genome, the, the junk, if you will, or we call it the dark side, also includes for RNA, all different species, all different types of untranslated molecules that actually uh, serve a very important purpose in really controlling those protein coding genes, controlling the architecture of DNA, controlling all types of functions, some of which we know, many of which we're still uncovering to date, that actually are quite important. So it turns out that our bodies are made in a really smart way and that really there's no parts of it that are that are there just for no reason at all, if you will, that they, they actually exist to serve a purpose. And we learn more and more about that each and every year. Yeah, so if we focus on that 98, 98% of the dark genome or the or, or junk DNA, as people have historically referred to it as incorrectly, Zooming in on that, what area of, of, of the dark genome is Camp 4 focused on and why? Exactly. There's a lot of companies that are studying the dark genome for different reasons. We're particularly interested in the regions of the non-coding parts of the genome that encode for a very special type of RNA called regulatory RNA. So RNAs that arise out of, for example, enhancers and promoters, which have classically been known as the parts of the genome that interact with genes to allow for mRNA to come out of those genes. So we're focused on really the ignition switch for the protein coding genes. Okay, so regulatory RNA, this is probably was not in our high school textbooks, right? There was messenger RNA and, and tRNA and all kinds of things. Obviously the repertoire of what we know about RNA has expanded significantly in, in the ensuing years since we all went to high school or college. And so now regulatory RNA, as you, as you describe it, is the ignition switch. If you can target regulatory RNA, what can you do with it? In other words, yeah. how do you make a medicine out of targeting regulatory RNA? Yeah, and this is the entire foundation of CAMP4 that I would say the existence of regulatory RNAs has probably been known for over a decade now. Their functional purpose, if you will, has really been discovered in the last couple of years by labs such as Rick Young, who's our founder, as well as a few other academic labs. And what CAMP4 discovered was that we could actually drug these regulatory RNAs and they become rheostats. That is, they can actually influence in a very specific way the expression of protein-coding genes. That is, they can increase the amount of mRNA that comes out of a protein-coding gene or they can even decrease it in, in certain cases as well. And this is a fundamental area of biology. Every single one of our protein-coding genes in every single cell is relying on these RNAs to influence the expression of their mRNA. So that's an important point, right? Because if you look at any given cell and how a cell is regulated, a cell very tightly controls the levels, almost like the volume levels of which genes it turns on and off and up and down. And what you're saying is, given your, your approach, given your platform, you're able to target specific genes and use regulatory RNA as a real that to essentially turn the volume up or down of that gene's level. That's exactly right. So we we have a platform that starts with a bunch of different wet lab work. And essentially we turn gene expression into an in silico design problem. That is, if we map out, we call it mapping. If we map out, for example, a human liver cell, you can name any particular protein coding gene you're interested in. 
And we can literally pull out a browser and tell you exactly how the non-coding genome and these regulatory RNAs are influencing the expression of that gene. And based on that, we can design drugs to control the expression of the protein coding gene. How is turning the, the level of a gene up help treat a disease? That's really the billion dollar question. To date, most of the drugs that are approved and on the market for therapeutic areas such as cancer, we are trying to get rid of mutated proteins or toxic things that are in our bodies. And we're pretty good at that. We can design antibodies. We can make small molecules. We can do all types of neat tricks to get rid of things. Now, there are some cases where um, you can actually replace what's missing in the body. So think of Genzyme a la enzyme replacement therapies, or think about what AEV was meant to do. And it does work in certain cases. That is, put something back in the body. That's the tip of the iceberg. It turns out that there are literally thousands of diseases with a genetic basis, meaning there's one mutated gene. You still, and remember, you have two copies of every gene or two alleles. And in many of these cases, you're literally missing 50% of what would otherwise be the normal amount of healthy protein product to live a human healthy life. And so what ends up happening is Patients are walking around, both rare and non-rare, that have a genetic mutation that basically doesn't give them enough healthy protein. And so because of that, you get all types of different disease states. And so this is the exact inverse of when you have a toxic product in your body that you're trying to clear. In this case, you need to put something back into the body. So really what you're saying is in these thousands of diseases that you've referenced, in many cases, the way to treat these diseases is to essentially increase the gene dosage that those cells are receiving or the patient is receiving. And the strategy that CAM4 is taking is to target regulatory RNA to effectively create an increase in gene dosages inside the body. That's exactly right. Okay, got it. And there are thousands of diseases to go after. How do you pick which ones to work on? Because a really great platform can do almost anything, but the company can't do everything. Yeah. And so how do you think about the prioritization problem in terms of which diseases to go after and how to prioritize what to work on? Yep. And let me do just a tiny bit of storytelling here because it might make it more interesting. So, you know, I'm very fond of the term follow the biology. And as you well know, Jorge, because you've you've rode shotgun with us in building camp for uh, one of the first things we did was really set out to characterize and understand how these regulatory RNAs work. And we very quickly stumbled upon the fact that they are rheostats. They can control the expressions of genes, one, in a very specific way, and two, they can increase mRNA or decrease it to the point you said. We became particularly interested in the increased expression because we just felt like most other technologies had failed in that endeavor. There were a, a few particular examples where it worked. And in those examples, what's really important is you just, you did not need a lot of protein put back in the body to heal patients. And that was really interesting to us in the, in the sense that a small increase can lead to a huge effect. So you don't need 10x fold increases, right? And so that's a really important notion. So to go back to your question, how do we choose? What, what, yeah, go ahead. What, what is a small increase? A small is increase can be- like, 5%? Could be anywhere from 25% up to 75%. I mean, okay. in many examples, which we have, because if you think about it, if you go up in an absolute 25%, you're now 75% on your way to be 100% normal which is interesting because we have found and others as well that you don't need to be 100% actually, that there's a tipping point. I mean, think about hemophilia. You can go from severe to moderate to mild by just a few notches upward in terms of the amount of factor in your body. I mean, it's that sensitive, our bodies, when you're talking about the amount of increase. And it turns out a lot of diseases seem to be like that. 
And, you know, what we have found, at least in many different animal models, is just a small amount of protein, as you said, 25% increase in these models can be the difference between sick and healthy. And we think that's going to translate into the human setting as well, because these actually recapitulated quite well. So that feeds perfectly into your question. How do we choose? Well, we like to think we're pretty sophisticated about how we choose diseases, but ultimately there's three defining factors that we care most about. The first is, what's the genetic basis of the disease? That is, how strong is the genetic evidence that if we increase the gene a little bit that we're targeting, it can lead to a healthy human? And we always look for genetic evidence. Sometimes nature does the work for us. So that's one piece. The next thing that we look at is, as a small company, we're always resource constrained. How quickly and how effectively and how confidently can we prove out our thesis in the clinic? So how easily can we get patients? Are there biomarkers? And how quickly can we do it? We don't want to work on a disease where we need 2,000 patients in five years for our first clinical study. That's very hard for a small one. So we like to pick things where we think we can win and we think we can win with confidence. And then the last one is, of course, unmet need and competition. So we ask the question, okay, if we're correct, even in the face of competition, does our drug win the day? And so those are ultimately three factors that we use. And then there's one other factor that's obviously a very rational one, which is because we're using antisense oligonucleotides, which I'm sure we'll talk about, we, we look to places where they have been de-risked. The whole concept of CAMP4 is let's be very deliberate about where we take risk. And so we know that we can deliver antisense to the liver subcutaneously, that is through an injection, safely and effectively. So that's one set of diseases we look at. And we know for certain regions of the CNS, the central nervous system, we can also deliver it. So we choose to work on those two tissues to start because delivery has been relatively solved. You're targeting regulatory RNAs with a specific type of therapy or a modality. Yeah. So again, some storytelling. We started first with the premise of we want a very specific way to increase gene expression. Okay, regulatory RNAs are our body's natural way of influencing gene expression in a specific way. These RNAs are not translated, meaning they don't become proteins. They, they get made and then they turn over. They get degraded quickly. So our next question was, okay, they're in the nucleus. That is, they're in the, the, the hardest to reach region of the cell and they're, they have a code. So what's the best modality, if you will, therapeutic modality to drug them? And that's what brought us to antisense oligonucleotides, which is a single stand, single stranded version of RNA, if you will. And what it can do is it offers two really important qualities amongst other things. First of all, we know because there's a company called Ionis, which has really pioneered the entire field of chemistry here and has products in the clinic as well as approved, that these oligonucleotides can get to the nucleus quite efficiently. So that's important. And two, because we're targeting RNA, we can take advantage of what's called Watson-Crick base pairing. That is, we can be very, very rational and specific in terms of the region of the RNA that we want to program with a drug. And so that allows us to create programmable antisense oligotherapeutics to essentially be specific for every disease and every regulatory RNA we want to go after. We just break that down for a second. That means if you've mapped out which regulatory RNAs matter for which genes in a given cell type. And you know that you want to target a specific gene within that cell type. I hate to use the word, but how trivial is it to design the ASO or the, the oligo to go hit that regulatory RNA to have the desired effect of turning up the volume of a target gene? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting. The part that's become 
and in silico exercise for us, if you will, is exactly what you said, which is tell me where the regulatory RNA is that I'd like to go after. What is still a bit empirical, although I can tell you we have some really interesting breakthroughs coming, is doing what's called a screen. That is rationally designing a library of oligos against that regulatory RNA. And I can tell you it's not rolling off a log because there are certain regions that we've discovered where we know we want to put the oligos. And then there are certain signatures, if you will, that we look for so that we can separate out what is real from what is noise, if you will. And so ultimately, it is one very efficient. So we can literally go from a regulatory RNA to a potential human clinical lead in in a matter of months, if you will. So that part's efficient. But we can do that because we've basically been navigating this the last four years and, and built the conditions to be able to study this and understand it. And so in some sense, it's become simple from our point of view in terms of doing the screens and optimizing. But I think it's because of all the knowledge we've built around how to study these RNAs and the signatures that we're looking for in terms of what a drug should be to move forward towards the clinic. Where is Campport today in terms of its mission to bring these medicines to patients? Let me start from what is the most tangible. We, we have two programs that we are intending to submit INDs for this year. So essentially, uh, our application to get agreement from the FDA to test our drug in human beings in the first clinical study. And so uh, our first program is for a disease called Dravet syndrome, which is a rare genetic epilepsy affecting children and adults. These children and adults can have hundreds of seizures on a monthly basis. We also have another very exciting drug for a rare genetic disease called urea cycle disorders, where you essentially have a buildup of ammonia. And because of this buildup of ammonia due to um, a misformed enzyme, you essentially get neurological side effects, vomiting, all types of other really bad side effects. It mainly affects infants and children, and there's really not a lot of approved products there as well. And we intend to submit an ND at an IND for that program towards the end of the year. And uh, one of the things that I'll highlight is our urea cycle program, we started screening for that, meaning the first work we started was at the beginning of 2021. If we submit an IND later this year, that will be within three years. We've gone from screen to IND, which is just incredible, actually. And that's the power of our platform and being able to use a programmable therapeutic. Um, we really do think it's a scalable engineering problem that really we just need to take it the next step and unlock it in the clinic. So you're a student of the biotech industry. The long-awaited promise and hope for therapeutic platforms has been that they become highly productive, you know, and programmability is is really, you know, a, a proxy for productivity, right? You can map a bunch of different cell types. If you have, if you figure out ways to effectively design um, ASOs, you can now start targeting multiple things. But as you said earlier, like most early stage biotech companies are resource constrained. So how do you think about solving the sort of the conundrum that a lot of biotech companies have of where to invest their limited resources in terms of continuing to improve their platform or investing in specific programs to move them towards the clinic? Like how do you, as a CEO, how do you manage that balance? Yep. First disclaimer, I've made many mistakes and I will continue to make mistakes. And you've witnessed those. Thank you um, for being patient with me. <laughs> so the worst thing that can happen for a platform company that looks like the technology works is let the one lead asset get way too far in front of everything else. Because the way this game works is ultimately, unless you're in the business of partnerships, you're in the business of making drugs. And so you're going to need more money as you get closer to the clinic, both for manufacturing and clinical development. 
And that means the checks get bigger. And eventually you're likely going to want to be on the public market, which means your investor base is going to continue to evolve as you go. And as you move towards the clinic, those investors aren't valuing you because you don't have any proof points yet in the clinic on your earlier stuff and your platform. They're valuing you on your quote unquote lead drug. And so, you know, there's no two ways around that. If you can, in the early days, maintain a portfolio, that is a variety of different shots on goal, right? And, and come up with ways to fund those either through equity financings or through business development as well, that essentially you can shift it from being a single product company and having multiple shots on goal, which is the whole point of a platform. The entire point of a platform is productivity, portfolio optionality, right? Not everything is always going to work. It might need some tweaking. And so essentially our point was make sure we're not in the clinic with just a single asset. Hence what I told you before, we have multiple assets going into the clinic. I honestly think one of the most important tenets of building a platform company is you can't let yourself just be a single product company because you will, for better or for worse, get valued that way and you'll lose the opportunity to execute on your platform. So you just alluded to it, but what is the role of of business development in the Camp4 strategy? And, and what would you say generally should be the role of business development for platform companies? There's two types of deals that you can think about. I mean, that um, one is what's called sort of an early research discovery deal. That is a uh, big pharma company is really interested in diseases XYZ that have a genetic basis and they want to increase gene expression. So they would come to Camp4, we would make the products, put it in their hands and collect milestones of royalties. Now, the trade-off with those, those are generally not very rich deals, right? They're Because they're so risky, they involve so much future capital to develop those products. But they're hugely validating for platform companies because they show that other people think your technology can solve problems. And to your point below about being resource-constrained, we can only develop a couple things at a time, if that. So putting our drugs in other people's hands that we wouldn't ourselves develop is one way to do it. It's not just validating, it's, it's creating more value, it's solving more problems. The other type of deal, mm-hmm. which I think is more common in this in this type of market is, you know, small companies are looking for money, big companies are looking to fill the pipeline. And so research discovery deals don't really scratch the itch. They're much more oriented towards things in the clinic that are closer to, to being approved products that can generate revenue. And so that's the other thing that we think a lot about is what are the, are we trying to, for example, be a Dravet syndrome company? No, we're not. We, we have a lot more to do. And so the question then becomes, how far should we carry the risk and develop the product before we seek a partner? And of course, the further you take it, the more right you are, the more valuable theoretically it should be. But of course, it costs more money and it's risky. So the other aspect the business development person should be thinking about with the CEO is when to partner and how to partner. People throw around the term partnership in, in a sort of black and white way, to partner or not to partner. And as our chairman would say, that's not the right question, right? It's what type of partnership, right? If I told you you could have 50% of the economics and the other company would pay for all the R&D, you'd probably take that deal for a product. That's a pretty good deal. If I told you you could have 20 million upfront and some milestones of royalties, but you that product was going to be the one you wanted to take all the way, it might not be a great deal for you. So I'm just throwing those out to say, you know, that's a big part of BD as well, is not just what you want to partner, but how you want to partner. You, you were the founding CEO of this company. This is also your first CEO gig. So tell me the story of how, you know, Josh comes to the, to the mountain, right? To camp four. I grew up at bigger companies and I think that's important. Actually, I started at Genzyme and then I went to Biogen and sure, there are parts of big companies that can be slower. You can feel a bit like a cog. I understand. 
There's also aspects of big companies that are just truly tremendous, meaning the amount of resources. And when I say resources, what I really mean is smart people that you can go and learn from, not just in terms of technical expertise, you want to learn about manufacturing, go find somebody who's an expert in that, but also at the board level, at the exec level, people that you can look at who have really lived through hard problems and just see how they operate with stress. I did that for about 10 years and I, my craft was business development. That's, that's where I chose to specialize, but Along the way, I met a lot of great people. And I, in 2017, I was introduced to one of your colleagues and my colleague who's on the board, Amir Nishat out of Polaris. And Amir had said, you know, we have um, an early stage company. It's a seed company. The science is really fantastic. It's got these tremendous founders and it doesn't necessarily know what it wants to be when it grows up. I thought the team here was really driven and I thought it'd be fun to come in and build something and to make an impact. And I like building things. And, and so... Um, I ended up joining the company in 2017 as uh, the the founding uh, CEO. I brought a colleague with me, Kelly Gold, who's now our CFO, who's done really well. Two other colleagues were here when I joined, David Baumkrat, who's become our CSO, and Alfika Segal, who's become our SVP of research. You've seen this, Jorge, that I'm a big believer of promoting from within. They, you know, We all started this adventure together, and they've all been here for six years, which is actually a point of pride for me. That, And I think it's one of the reasons that Camp 4 is being successful now is we know how to work together. And I think that's really important. You've been on this journey together as a team and you as the as the founding CEO for you know going on six years now. You've referenced a couple of times mistakes you've made, lessons learned. Give us the bullet point summary of some of the key lessons you've learned along the way as a first-time CEO. Right. Well, I think the first one is, you know, what does it mean to be a CEO? You know, I always thought like, well, I am the CEO. I have those three letters after my name. Doesn't that make me the CEO? And, and the reality is, no, I think there's defining moments in a CEO's life where you need to make the really hard decisions. And when I say hard decisions, it's, it's the time when people aren't, they don't know what the right decision is. In fact, they might even be in disagreement with you and how you compose yourself, how you work through those things, how you get to the decisions, your thought process and navigating through that, I think is a lot about being a CEO. I was very fortunate in that I had a team that believed in me and a board too that believed in me was patient with me while we worked through things and, and quite frankly allowed us to do very risky things that I think took a lot of courage, not just for me, but for the company and for the people on the board and the investors. A couple other important lessons, culture. Too often it gets talked about as, as if it's something you engineer. The first thing is to really understand what is it about your company? What is it about you? How do you want to operate? As the CEO, it's not what you say, it's what you do. And so you can say whatever you want, but if you don't role model those behaviors, then it doesn't really matter. So that's what I mean by understanding your own culture and being very deliberate about how you create those virtues and those actions within the company, how you hire people. I mean, if you look at our turnover, we have some of the lowest turnover in the industry. I, I think that's a lot because we design it that way in terms of the people we bring in are very happy here. We build benefits around what we say we're going to do. And then what is the most important lesson out of all these, ironically, is the disease you choose to work on shall be the thing that, that, or disease is, shall be the things that will make or break you. I've heard lots of companies say, well, I'm going to choose this indication because it's going to prove out my platform. Well, the reality is, if you go back to what I said earlier, you're going to become that thing unless you partner it off. And so it's not as simple as just choosing something that's going to prove out your platform. And I think that if you have a platform company, it is the most difficult decision. And unfortunately, once you start working on it, then you get momentum in the company. The scientists are working on it. It's not as easy as just flipping off a light switch, right? There's cultural impacts if you shut something down. So that by far has been one of the biggest learnings for me is 
sort of understanding how you choose things and what it means, not today, but actually in the future and, and how you roll with that. Riding shotgun, as you said earlier, from the vantage point uh, as a board member, one of the things that the Josh that I've been most impressed by your leadership in camp four is how you've navigated the challenges. And one early challenge that you faced was really to go through the dreaded P word, right? To the pivot. So in the earliest days of the company, you weren't developing ASOs to go after regulatory RNA. At the risk of getting too detailed in the science, you were developing small molecules to hit signaling pathways that could indirectly impact how, you know, genes are, are regulated. And that experiment ultimately didn't bear out, or at least didn't bear out as, as, as you would have hoped. And you made a very difficult decision and executed a very, I would say, challenging pivot in the company to refocus the platform on a different type of medicine, going after a different type of target. That's pretty extraordinary. That's not that common. It's certainly not for an early stage company. Give me the, give me the nail biter version of what you went through in that, on that journey. The, the best thing you could do is figure out as quickly as possible is, is, is there a need for the thing you're designing? Is there a product fit? right? Don't operate and build it in a vacuum only to find out later there's no need for it, right? You, you might've built the most beautiful house, but if nobody wants to buy it, who cares? That's how we were operating Camp 4. What I can tell you is we were leveraging our mapping platform. But what we found was when you're using small molecules for the targets we were going after for non-cancer indications, it just was not specific enough. Meaning we could move the genes underlying the disease, but we could also move a lot of other genes. And our conversations with both investors and pharma partners was, your platform's really interesting. We're intrigued by it. It's very, very unique in the mapping aspect of it. But the therapeutics, we worry about being the therapeutic window and off-target effects. And so my view was, you know, we're going to build products here that unless we're just so convinced that everybody is wrong, maybe we should really listen to what people are telling us. They're telling us that our underlying platform of mapping is really powerful. It gives you really important information, but that the targets and modalities we're using really aren't the right applications for the reasons that they're not specific enough. And that set off a really interesting dialogue with one of our founders, Rick Young. And, and Rick got it right away. And he said, you know, there, there are these really unique targets that I've been learning about that are really influential. Really, it's a whole new era of transcription that is protein expression that Rick's an, an expert in. And he said, there's these things called regulatory RNAs. And I bet you if we drug those, we can actually have a more specific effect. But, you know, let's figure out how we do that. Last bit of serendipity, it turns out two of the people I mentioned, David and Alfika, had come from El Nylum. David more recently from Editas. These guys know oligos. So when I talked to them about it, as well as others, they said, yeah, we know what to do with that. We'll just get oligonucleotides. We'll design it against it and we'll start testing. And so we very quickly shifted to that. And it turns out you can just, now we have internal capabilities, but you can get them as reagents externally made very quickly. We did that and we started getting some pretty interesting results. And so that really started to give us the confidence, but it was all about the market feedback and also the fact that we felt like we had about, at the time, eight months, if you remember, of cash. And I came back and I said, we're going to make it last for more than a year and, and we're going to generate data. And and we're going to give you guys the pitch as to, first, it was, here's how you know it's working. Second of all, where are you going to point it? Why should I care about this? If you remember, there was a conversation, Josh, great, you can move things threefold. So what? Well, that goes back to the initial part of our discussion. There are hundreds of diseases, if not thousands, where 
that small little increase is going to be the difference between a sick and a healthy patient. And we, and there's no cures for that. And so now all of a sudden we've got something and we have the right people to work on it. And I think because we had a team that had been working together for so long, it was a standing start for us. I mean, we were off and running. And you're doing so in a way that could change the way we think about treating lots of diseases. So it's a remarkable story. Um, it's been an honor to be a part of it. And I know the, the headwinds are strong, but it's, yeah, as you say, you can wear as a badge of honor that you've navigated more treacherous waters. So keep climbing. Thanks for having me on. We're pretty excited about what we're building here. And I think our ultimate mission is to be the next great biotech company. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.